Greetings and welcome to your Afrofuturist podcast. My name is Ahmed Best. Thank you for joining. We are continuing with our Z Futures interviews, talking to young people about how they see the future and and what we can learn uh, from them and from their perspective. And today we're talking with a a fantastic uh, young man named Cadella Burroughs. Cadella is an interactive media artist. He's a writer. He's a nomadic traveler. He comes from a, a long line of intellectuals, especially when it comes to Africa, West Africa, Liberia specifically. And um, we talk a lot about that. We talk about how his influence and his father's influence, his father was is a preeminent scholar of Liberia and the Liberian history and how that has influenced him, how that is... Um, taking shape in his life and his world and what that does to him as a, as a media artist and a creative writer. Cadella spent a lot of time in China. He uh, went to the New York University in Shanghai and his experience as a student in China, especially a student of color, is very pertinent to how he sees the future and um, what things that we can think about and, and consider when we're talking to people in his generation and how they interact and react to what's going on, I'm not going to do any more talking. I really want y'all to listen to Cadella and and hear his point of view. So without further ado, please welcome Cadella Burroughs. Cadella, how are you, my brother? Yeah, I, you know, hanging in there. I feel like with everything that's going on right now, definitely bracing for impact, but trying to trying to stay positive throughout today. Yeah, yeah. A lot of things um, can happen today. Uh, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk today um, is because the climate of the future seems to be this big question mark right now. And um, with this election happening and things shifting in a way that they're shifting. I wanted to get your take on this idea of how you think and what you think the future holds and just your perspective on the times right now, how you're thinking about the times right now and how that reflects how you see the things in these next like 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, I think um, right now, because of how pressing the situation is, uh, specifically because it is election day and it feels like a very big moment for the country, it, it feels particularly dire, right? It feels like on the ballot we have, you know, some super fascist like dystopian future on one side and then we have like the potential for that and then the potential for other options on the other side that's what it feels like the last few months the general rhetoric or idea has been around it um but it's something that i think i continue to try to cling on to when i'm searching for hope in this situation is that like the the more power that the person that currently lives in the white house amasses the more he goes out of his way to alienate people that aren't like him and the easier it becomes for everybody who isn't like him to recognize the importance of banding together uh, with people who aren't necessarily like themselves, but just don't 
share the same identity as him uh, in order to come together to fight against all of the, the evil and the wrongdoing that he's trying to bring into this world. Um, so that's, that's how I've been able to kind of keep going through this right now is just taking solace in the fact that in times like these, in crises like these, it feels like we're being called upon to support each other in ways that we haven't before. And I, I'm continually positively surprised by how much people are willing to stick their necks out for people that aren't necessarily like them at a time like this. What do you think your generation is caring about that you don't think the older generations aren't caring enough about? Mm-hmm. And what are what are you guys thinking about that you think is like, let's get past that. Like we're 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 done with this idea. We actually have to think about this. Like what is the thing that you guys are thinking about that you don't think we're thinking enough about? Um well, I think in terms of climate change, right? Yeah. Uh there's a, a growing sentiment amongst people of my generation uh around like having children that I think is very very new. That's where Yeah, where it seems like before, you know, uh, like throughout all of human history up until like this generation, it seemed like, you know, the, the obvious thing for people to do was to, you know, get married and then have kids. And that, that was kind of the, the, the prototype for, for your life, right? It's like, you, you want to continue your, your line on down the road, but it feels like for the first time now we are being called to ask ourselves if that is the right thing for us to do not only for ourselves, you know, because a lot of us aren't in a position where, you know, we feel like we will ever have the means to support a family, but also for the fate of the planet, right? Because when you have a child, and this isn't, of course, this isn't like uh, trying to create beef with anybody who has kids, right? Like, I love my parents. I'm glad that they had me. And of course, I have a lot of friends who have children now. But when you have, when you have children, it is impossible to have a net zero impact on, on the planet because by nature we have to consume. And the way that we live in the societies that we live in today, uh, there's always going to be negative externalities or, or a cost on the planet for that sort of consumption. So I feel like there's a lot of people who are now questioning if they want to have children, not just because of you know their own personal values, not just because of uh, if they'll be able to financially, but because they're afraid that having kids will mean the death of the planet. Right. Mm. Um, so I think that in a lot of, um, a lot of countries in like wealthier countries, a lot of people are now facing this question of like, uh, do I, do I even have, have kids? And I think that we're going to see like a, a, a steeper drop off in the amount of kids that people are having in places like the U S and certain European countries. Yeah. And it's yeah. kind of, it's already on the decline. Like, you know, there's, um, there's a really good study out where um, the idea of depopulation is actually a bigger crisis than overpopulation, right? Mm-hmm. And a big proponent of that is the fact that there are a lot more women choosing to be professionals mm-hmm. and and not mothers. And for some reason, um, the older generations have a problem with that, right? Mm-hmm. Do you believe that we're that the that the the older generations are thinking way too much about that and what do you think they should be thinking more about hmm. you mean in terms of uh, women 
going into the workplace rather than staying home or? Yeah, I'm thinking in terms of this idea of the ideal thing to do as human beings is to procreate, right? Right. You want to continue to populate the planet and carry on a legacy genetically. Mm -hmm. Because of what we're going through in the extremes of climate change, younger folks are thinking less about that. Right. We're mm-hmm. actually thinking about our footprint even as far down the road as having children. Mm-hmm. Right. And it seems to it seems to feel like having kids is not as high on the priority list as it was in the older generations. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you said, it's not anything against having children. It's just like as far as priorities go, like we right. don't we might be leaving a bigger footprint and more problems for the planet than we necessarily have to be, right? So mm-hmm. let's not really think too much about having kids as the pinnacle of, of human expression, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think is the thing that um, the older folks are thinking too much about that actually has like no impact on the way you guys think? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Hmm. Something that they're thinking too much about. Um, do you mind if I uh, think on this one for a second? Yeah, and you know the okay. reason why I ask is because we're talking about priorities, right? Right. And the priority used to be mm-hmm. get married, have a family, buy right. a house, move to the burbs. Make sure that your your kids are getting this X education. Yeah. They do, and you know, 40 hours a week for 40 years, retire and go to Florida, right? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, when you frame it like that, I think I have a, a bit of a clearer answer. Um, I think that, uh, I, I, I don't know if this is just within the circles that I operate in or if this is like a broader trend. I feel like it's a broader trend based off of the way that I've seen the internet react to this past election or this election cycle. But it feels like our, our generation is moving away from like this this dream of, you know, acquiring a lot of wealth and property, mm-hmm. uh, f- finding a family and then, you know, moving on to your own private land and living amongst from uh, li- living away from the rest of society. Right. Where before it seems like older generations were really about trying to accumulate private property or or, or uh, things that would then contribute to their own personal growth or success. I feel it's like a lot of people of this generation are much more invested in like our collective achievement and moving towards these situations where we're living together either with roommates in, into our adult lives or you know starting to work with co-ops rather than like trying to start uh, startups where you're just like trying to make as much money for you and your investors as, as possible, right? Um, so I think that's something that we're, we're really moving away from uh, and in more towards like either feeling, li- living our lives in a, in a way where we feel fulfilled in the moment and at that time rather than like deferring our happiness for once we retire, you know, 50, 60 years from now because a lot of us feel like that's not, not really guaranteed uh, or, you know, working very hard to ensure that as we are, are, are working to create change, uh, we're pu- pulling up the, those that are around us rather than like seeking 
uh, our own advancement at the expense of people around us. And of course, I mean, that's like a, I'm very biased in this, right? Like, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm like putting, putting shots at, uh, at the older generation, but I definitely do feel like there's a, a greater push towards like collectivism and cooperativism now than I've seen in, in previous generations. Right. And see, the reason why I ask this question, because you're um, a person that I believe thinks very deeply. Thank you. Um, and you think very deeply about these things because of um, your upbringing and, and, and where, where you're from. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, tell me a little bit about how growing up influenced you into thinking as deeply as you think. Um, yeah. So I guess with that, my, my story be begins like all of ours way before I was born. Right. Um, and so I would say that when I describe my own, my own background, I like to describe myself as kind of a nomad and somebody who comes from a somewhat nomadic family uh, on my mom's side. My mom is from Chicago, and she, during her college years, uh, spent a significant amount of time traveling around Africa and on, trying to discover herself and uh, ended up taking on the name Ajua. And, and before her, my grandparents were from Georgia and moved to Chicago during what was known as like the Great Migration in order to try to find work and escape the racism of the Deep South. Uh, and then on my dad's side, my dad is from Liberia in West Africa. Um, and moved to the U.S. when he was younger, um, partially to get away from the political instability that was happening there. Um, but his parents are from Jamaica and moved to Liberia right before my dad was born um, as a part of this. Mm, this is generate or this is years and years after Marcus Garvey, but it was still a part of that general sentiment of uh, Pan Africanism and moving back to Africa in order to you know create. Uh, sustainable wealth for black people. And uh, that, so that's, that's my background. And I, I think that that has always impacted me because, you know, from the time that I was very, very young, I knew that I wanted to leave the U.S. Uh, when I was studying for as long as possible to try to get an outside perspective and see the world from a different angle. Um, and it is always because of that situation or the, my upbringing and in, inside of that house, those households, it, it felt like I was always being questioned to uh, are called to question why I believe the things that I believe, right? I've never really felt a sense of duty or allegiance to a particular nationality um, or a lot of these other identifiers that we take onto ourselves because it's my, my background and my, my family background is so heterogeneous, right? Everybody comes from such different backgrounds. Right. And then you spent some time in China as well. You ended up in China. Yeah, yeah. So I spent my undergrad undergrad years in, in, in Shanghai, uh, studying at New York University, Shanghai, as a part of the second graduating class there. And then um, after I graduated, I came back to the U.S. for a little while. And then last year in October, I um, moved to Taiwan for about six months and then uh, traveled for work uh, right at the, the worst moment. So as I was returning back to Taiwan uh, from my trip during my layover, Taiwan actually closed the border. So I ended up staying in the U.S. Uh, until now. So, you know, a big thing that I'm always talking about is the ability to decentralize our thinking globally from the West, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the, the value system, especially when we're talking about governments and business, have been um, 
really imposed upon us from these Western ideals, which is why I'm I'm always very interested in anyone with a West African background, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being a descendant of the enslaved Africans that were forcibly brought here and forced to think in this very Western centralized way, I'm always fascinated fascinated by people who decentralized their thinking and actually made a move and did the thing, right? Mm-hmm. So when your parents following Marcus Garvey or your, your grandparents following the teaching of the Garveyites moved to West Africa, what was that experience like? And, you know, the Garveyites, and I don't think people, a lot of people know about Marcus Garvey and the Garveyites and his movement of Pan-Africanism, Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of factions within the Pan-African movement that um, made the made the Pan-African migration to West Africa challenging. Mm-hmm. So I would love to know what that experience was like for your grandparents and then eventually your father. And um, what is the reality of Pan-Africanism, right? Mm-hmm. There's the fantasy of the Garveyites and, and, and Pan-Africanism. And I, and I have to admit, I, I have it as well. You know what I'm saying? Like, I right, think, right, oh, totally. I'm going to just go to West Africa and be a, in a country with my people. They're going to embrace me. You know what I'm saying? Like there's this right. dream of like moving to Africa. And then there's the reality of it, which is like, mm-hmm. oh, we are human beings and there are, there are politics and you do have to be aware of all of these things. So what is the reality of Pan-Africanism and what are some of the things and the challenges, positive and possibly not so positive, that um, your family went through? Totally, totally. Um, So I would say moving to Liberia from Jamaica, I always got the impression that, you know, when they, they first arrived, they were received super super well with open arms right because at that point liberia was really you know this this was over a hundred years after um people formerly enslaved people from the u.s um re returned to africa in in liberia um or re, i'm trying to place the the exact verb here but return yeah re, return to um, to Liberia, but Liberia was still at that point try, trying to center itself as the the crown jewel of the Pan African movement. I, I would say so. There is a lot of initiatives led by the government to try to encourage people from throughout the diaspora to come to Liberia. So at that point in history, from my understanding, Liberia was a, a very diverse place, right? where you had people from Jamaica, a lot of Jamaicans coming, a lot of people from the Caribbean coming. You also had people from other parts of Africa and from the Middle East who came uh, to, to, to the area. Uh, and when my grandfather and my grandmother arrived, um, they ended up starting a farm that ended up being quite, quite successful in terms of exporting things. And I believe that he ended up working for the government because of the success of the, 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 the farm, right? And to me, that shows that there was an actual willingness to embrace people from throughout the diaspora that was like grounded in actually mm, centering uh, achievement over just like pure, pure nationality. Right. Because how often do you see it where people who are immigrants from another country come in, start a business and then end up being so successful that they end up working for the government Mm -hmm. in order to advise on these things. Right. Um, 
but I don't want to paint it as if it's all like roses and, and hopeful, right? Because I do know that there was still, my, my family in Liberia still was surrounded a lot of the times by other Jamaicans and people who had immigrated into the country from other places. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how integrated it, it was, you know, especially if you left Monrovia, the capital city, right? Um, and in terms of the, the way that Pan-African plays out, Pan-Africanism plays out within my own dad's life. Um, I think at, during his time studying at Howard and teaching at Howard, when you're in those places that center black intellectuals uh, and people who, you know, like us are inclined to believe in this dream of Pan-Africanism, you're, you're going to enter into these conversations where it, it is very hopeful and everybody believes in this, this dream, this vision and is willing to work together to make that happen. But as soon as you leave the halls of Howard and you, you leave the halls of the HBCUs, um, you're, you're still going to experience discrimination from either non-black people and sometimes other black people who aren't of the same background as you, right? So my, I know my, my, I've spoken to my parents before about how when my uh, dad uh, was first dating my mom and my mom talked to her father about the fact that they were thinking about getting married, my grandfather was like, well, I don't, I don't want you to marry an African. He's just going to take you back to Africa and I'm never going to see you again. And he's going to have, you know, five wives or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not, I'm not proud that my grandfather had the, the sentiment at, at all, but it, it does show that it's, it, it's always, sometimes it feels like it's coming from all sides. You know, even when you guys are technically on the same team or when you are on the same team, it feels like we're always trying to find ways to make someone else the other, right? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, your father being a scholar, really, of the Liberian, uh, of Liberian history, and and you growing up with that, you have a, a, a very in-depth perspective of Liberia. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about your personal feelings for um, the Liberian experience? personally and politically that um, helps to inform uh, who you are today and your visions of the future? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, so my, my dad is Liberian. My, my family on my dad's side is Liberian and they, they enjoyed their time there for while they were there, but many of them ended up leaving uh, due to the political situation that started to develop in the eighties. And many of them have now committed to not returning to the country. I know that my dad has returned and he's planning on, you know, settling there as he retires, but a lot of people in my family aren't so inclined to. However, I was always raised with Liberia as this, this idyllic place, uh, this dream-like place where there was temporary conflict that has since arisen, but, you know, it was never like this up until a certain period. And it is possible for us to get back to what it was before, right? Right. For those who uh, don't know, tell us about what the political strife was in Liberia in the 80s. um, Yeah, so Liberia experienced two civil wars back-to-back. Uh, starting with a coup that happened in 1980. Um, And it's a very, very tricky situation 
because Liberia is a, a melting pot, right? Not just as, as a Pan-African melting pot with people from throughout the diaspora, but even within the country, you have um, different native groups who settled there at various points in history. Uh, and that's actually what a, a huge part of what my dad's most recent book, Between the Cola Forest and the Salty Sea, is about is how this region was settled by different groups throughout time, right? Uh, and during this period of conflict, these groups were pitted against each other in a way where uh, the, the people in power would say, oh, look at these guys who are so much worse than we are. Let's, we have free reign to get rid of them, right? And then there was also similar sentiment towards Americo-Liberians or people who had um, uh, returned to the continent uh, following American enslavement, right? Uh, so th that, that period was in incredibly, incredibly devastating to the country. Um, but it was also a very frustrating period because Liberia up to that, that time had been growing uh, to be more and more successful or more of a, a pivotal point within the, the grand scheme of, of the world, right? And from my understanding, I don't know if this is accurate, but I definitely have heard before that when the coup happened, Liberia had one of the sharpest drop-offs in GDP in the history of the world, wow. right? So it, I've always grown up with this vision of, wow, what could have been had this conflict not happened, right? right? Um, and I think for me personally, knowing that, you know, my family is from there and that we have land there, I've always seen Liberia as this place that's like, okay, this is, I, I, I've always had some claim to this place because it is the place of my family. But I feel like in the, the grander scheme of Pan-Africanism, Liberia has the chance or has the potential to offer that same ideal dream vision for others because it, it was founded in order to act as a place where we as black people can lay claim to land ourselves, right? right. Um, Liberia is interesting in that it's, I think, the only country in the world where you have to be a black person in order to own land there, right? Uh, so that's, that's a really, really powerful move in, in order for us to, as black people to feel like we, we are deserving of and able to uh, achieve land ownership and control of land and such like stuff. So like when that. the conflict in Liberia happened, mm -hmm. what was it over? And, and the reason why I asked that question is because the value systems that um, are in place, especially when it comes to commodities, right? Land, food, money. The value systems that are in place are really based on trade globally, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the folks who control that trade and who set those numbers are mostly in the West. Right. Right. So what happened in Liberia um, to create the coup and was that was that a byproduct of a globalization idea in the west that started in the west hmm that's a that's a very very good question and i feel i don't feel super comfortable talking about what the very like concrete 
catalyst for the conflict is because mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like I'm well versed enough to, to speak on it appropriately. But in terms of the role that the West and like Western ideals of, of progress played on in the conflict, um, it has always been a really, really frustrating point of contention for me that we we oftentimes talk about African African warlords and how all of these people were so terrible for going in and killing their own people, which I, is totally, totally true, right? I don't want to take away any um, importance from, from that fact, right? But it's also very, very important to note that during this time, the United States was very complicit in ensuring that this conflict continued to, to go on, right? right. Uh, where they had the power to intervene and say, hey, this is unacceptable, you need to stop. Instead, they provided weapons and, and, and money to people on either side in order to, you know, continue to benefit from this conflict, right? right? Because as long as they have the people who are in power in their pocket, they are then able to scounge and resources from us, right? Even as recently as the last president before the president that we have now, um, President Ellen Johnson's relief, um, she, she was the first person uh, who's democratically elected after the conflict ended. But many Liberians feel like she was kind of a plant by the West mm-hmm. in order to keep things under wraps and still in control of, of the, the Western powers, right? Um, one a kind of anecdote that my, my dad has used to describe this before is the fact that in Liberia, people describe her as the, the Iron Lady, which isn't a term that has any, any, any kind of root in Liberian culture at all. That's a very Western way of referring to a female leader. It's the same way that you, we talk about Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher. Right. She was the iron lady. Right. So it's a, it's a similar sentiment that is just applied across. So, uh, there, there is, has always been that feeling of like, yes, maybe it wasn't as, uh, direct as other interventions that the U.S. has had in other countries uh, in order to cause trouble or, you know, overthrow the people in power. But there is definitely, they're definitely complicit at at best, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So from from your point of view, um, and and you actually having roots there, because you still, your, your family still owns there, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think is the future of Liberia? And if you had your druthers, what would you do to make sure that Liberia has a future, especially for generations like yours and and younger and those who are coming up in the future? Um, I I believe that the future is is quite bright for Liberia. I think we have a lot of healing that we still need to do right mm-hmm. we have a lot of healing that we still need to do from the the wars um i mean because we didn't see those 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 conflicts end until my lifetime and so there's a, an entire generation of of kids who w- who grew up entirely without having a an education system in place uh and we we still have to we have so 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 much healing to do from that conflict still we also still have so much healing to do from the Ebola crisis. Um, but I feel like people are so ready for solutions at this point and are, are willing to back people who have Liberians' best interests at heart. Uh, 
so I think that Liberia is is back on the come up now. I would say that um, one one thing that I think would get a, help us get to that point quicker is following a similar model as what Ghana has done with the year of return and trying to re-emphasize the importance of Liberia within the narrative of Pan-Africanism in, in order to help provide opportunities for people within the diaspora to return specifically to Liberia to, to help jumpstart the economy and see the history in, in person. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that it can't, if it can't be just about having Liberia as a solo nation succeed at this moment. Right. I think that the, the only way that Liberia can succeed itself as if it's also in the process of trying to help the the rest of the African diaspora, what makes up a, a, our community as black people succeed, right? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I want to talk about this a little bit further, but kind of in the vein of your skill set, right? Mm-hmm. And you being a technologist, you being um, a very big global thinker, you having all of these experiences internationally, as well as somebody who is, you know, a futurist and, 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 and constantly thinking about future forecasting. What is, a, what is something that you would do that you have in your pocket, like a skill set that you would have to make this right of return to Liberia, Liberia possible? Like, what is an idea that you would, would implement in order to bring people closer to Liberia? Yeah, I, I, so like I mentioned before, I went to school in, in Shanghai, uh, at NYU Shanghai, and my major in school was interactive media arts. And I, I, I absolutely loved my studies. Uh, I feel like even today, it's been years since I graduated, but I still think of the labs where I was studying as home and to, to, to a certain extent, right? And um, if I were, for me, the most obvious solution to creating this, this an impetus for people to return would be to create some sort of um, community based in Liberia uh, that is centered around education and giving people the skills to create things themselves, right? And that can be in this makerspace world of like using technologies and stuff, but it can also be in the, 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 the realm of like worker cooperatives and, and other initiatives like that where you are giving people the means to create things for themselves and also offering, you know, classes and, and, uh, and opportunities for people to learn how to do these things for themselves so that it's not just like, oh, we're using people as resources in order to generate profit for ourselves, right? Um, and I, I think that's, that's ultimately what it's going to take, right, is continuing to, at every turn, give people the resources to create for themselves uh, rather than trying to extract from the, the 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 less we can extract from people's creation, uh, I think the the faster and the easier it'll be for us to make the entire country thrive as a whole. And um, you know, and I, and and the thing that strikes me about that is, I think what you're talking about, um, or an aspect of what you're talking about is trust, right? We have to find a way to trust one another in order for the to heal from the civil war in order to prevent another civil war and um, coming up with things, ideas and tools to garner trust 
and and feel accepted is something that's I think is a big deal. You know what I'm saying? It, it really it really matters a lot. And with me being you know American and of Caribbean descent, you know, like I said earlier, going back to Africa is 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 a bit of a dream, right? And it's it's a bit of a utopian kind of a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, but along with that, there's a fear. There's a fear of not being accepted. Uh, there's a fear of feeling like an outsider and being treated like an outsider. Mm-hmm. And there's a fear of mistrust, right? And mm-hmm. I and I and I, you know, remember I have a lot of conversations with people from the continent uh, and Americans, right? And there is a pushback from people on the continent um, about Americans coming to Africa thinking they can, you know, in their words, quote unquote, take over, mm-hmm. right? What can we do to make sure that both sides, the fear of going back and look, being, being looked at as a foreigner, as an outsider and not as a brother, mm-hmm. And the fear from inside coming in as a usurper, somebody to take your resources and exploiter. What can we do to kind of dispel both of those fears? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a really really great question, um, and it's something that you know that that fear that you you have mentioned about going back and feeling like an outsider. That's something that I've I've grappled with a lot too. Even as somebody who is of Liberian descent, right? Because uh, I am a my, both me and my dad are both relatively light-skinned people, right? And we, even growing up, my dad, having been born in Liberia and lived there for all of his like childhood, was constantly being made to feel other by you know his Liberian classmates and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's something that I think it's it's a very very valid concern. Um, but I think that all, all we can ultimately do is enter into, try to enter into conversations with each other uh, as much as we can and humble ourselves, right? Rid ourselves of ego in order to recognize uh, where is it that we do have authority to lay claim to understanding or knowledge or resources uh, and what do we feel like we have a claim to that isn't necessarily actually ours, right? Um, I think there, if we go into these situations as people who uh, haven't really spent a, a ton of time there and we come in and we say like, okay, this, this is Africa and we impose our ideas of what Africa could be or should be uh, onto it, then of course people are going to push back and say, hey, that's not, that's not my reality. But if we're having conversations with people who are on the ground there and who are living in these situations and asking them instead, hey, what do you think? Rather than saying, this is what I think should be done. Right. It's going to be a lot easier to have those kinds of conversations. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, what would be a good like social media platform for those of us who want to embrace Pan-Africanism and possibly trying to find some kind of a foothold and roots in not just Liberia, but anywhere in Africa? And if one doesn't exist, what would one look like? Like, what, how would how would how would that look from from the eyes of? Cadella Burroughs, like what, 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 it, what would that be? Yeah. Um, so I'm actually, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to plug my work too much here, but, uh, so I, I am 
work for a company called Currents, which uh, is a music streaming service that works on like a direct subscription model. So you subscribe to an artist and pay them directly rather than paying us as a service and then we distribute and, and having us distribute it. Right. And one of our main, uh, our, our main products is a, a regular digital club event called common where we have artists and panelists and performers come from around the world and stream in live, uh, in these events where it's kind of like a digital festival space and you have different rooms. So you can kind of hop between rooms and stuff. And I'm actually in the process of organizing a room for November 21st that's focused explicitly on the intersection between the African and Chinese diasporas, right? Where we have a number of performances from people who are, live at that intersection and panels with people from those, from those two worlds uh, in order to start to have these conversations with each other in a way where it's like actual dialogue. Um, and I think that more, like, the more we have platforms like that where it encourages people to have conversations with each other uh, explicitly conversations where we're not hiding behind anonymous usernames and stuff uh, will make it a lot easier for people to uh, really connect with each other on a human on a human level um, I, I haven't seen too many other platforms that are explicitly geared towards um, towards people for, from within the African diaspora but I'd really be interested in seeing what, what crops up within these, these next few years as, uh, as we see the, the, the fruits of Afrofuturism bear now that we're finally having more and more conversations about right. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a re- uh, you know, you brought up something that's really interesting um, about China. And, and because you went to school in Shanghai and are of Liberian descent, um, I would love to get your opinion on the Chinese presence in Africa, because there are a lot of different points of view about it, uh, culturally as well as economically. And um, I would love to get kind of your take on what's happening with the Chinese a- in Africa. Do you feel threatened by it at all? Um, are you worried about it? Or is it something that we're kind of blowing out of proportion Mm -hmm. that's a that's a really good question this is something that i I grapple with a a ton a ton right uh because i feel like my first reaction when i first started to hear about this was one of just frustration because i felt like a lot of the times it was um my white classmates or, or white expats within shanghai coming to me seeing a a person of african descent and saying hey well why aren't you angry about China in Africa? You know, it's neo-colonialism. Right. And that that used to make me so angry because it's like how can you how can you apply this label to what is happening now without doing the work to properly reconcile the the effects of actual colonialism, yeah. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Which, <laughs> and to compare what's yeah. going on to, you know, colonialism which caused the transatlantic slave trade and caused the extraction of so many resources for hundreds of years, I think is just disrespectful. Right. Yes. Um, I think the other important distinction is that a lot of the times when we talk about Chinese, Chinese development in Africa, it using, using that term of like Chinese development kind of obscures the fact that what this is, is really a lot of the times it's a, it's a, it's a huge range of companies uh, and different parties that happen to be from China 
that are doing various things within the continent. It's not like it's the Chinese government coming in and saying, hey, we're going to construct this thing and then get, give up on it or whatever, right? Sometimes there are subsidies from the Chinese government to help these companies go into Africa in order to develop. But a lot of the times it, it, it is third-party companies that are coming in and doing these things. Um, so it feels a little bit... Um, I, and I, I don't think that this is necessarily the intention of a lot of the people who talk about it in this way, but it does kind of amalgamate all of these people into a single entity, which makes it a lot easier to point at an enemy. But I don't think that's necessarily what we, we need to be doing or should be doing right now. Uh, I think that pretty consistently, when I look at instances of like Chinese developers coming in and developing things, and a lot of times we hear about like, okay, this company built a bridge and then it collapsed within... A week or two weeks or whatever. Uh, what we're not talking about is the fact that these are are cuts that were were being made in order to. Or these are these are the consequences of budget cuts that that were made to make the project cheaper or whatever. And that means that there were are two parties involved there, right? There are the people who approved the cheaper thing, oftentimes in order to benefit themselves by skimming off the amount of money that would be going into the development of this project. Uh, and then there's also the people who are constructing it, right? And that means that there are oftentimes parties on both sides, both in the development side and in terms of the government, giving out these contracts that we need to be examining. And to put all of the blame on to the, the Chinese developers, it, 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 gives, it takes away uh, accountability from people in the government who should also be working more responsibly or, uh, than, than they are, right? Right. Do you think there is a danger that um, Africans will lose out on Africa? Like, do you do you think that that because the Chinese infrastructure is is so supported on the continent, you know, the ability of these companies to come in, do you see like Africans? with the ability to achieve inside of these structures? Or is it another case of we'll be the labor force as the black people and we're just going to support businessmen from China as they get super rich off of our labor? Yeah, I I definitely feel that fear for, for the latter. Uh, especially when we see instances where it's like, the companies are developing infrastructure around railroads or ports, right? Where these are the only ways for goods to enter and exit the country, right? Because a lot of the times, even if it is um, a third-party entity physically developing these things, a lot of the times the like Chinese banks will be giving loans to governments in order to construct these things. And if they default on the loan, we have no idea what happens to... the. The own, like who owns this port after right. they default on a loan or something, right? Because even if the Chinese bank is essentially a third party, it is still tied to the CCP. Um, and I, so I do, I do definitely fear what happens uh, when loans start to not be paid back, uh, especially after when the, the, these are major points of um, points of, of commerce, right? Right. What would you do, you personally, mm -hmm. what would you do to level the playing field to make sure that Africa can still be a place 
of 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 wealth and and benefit for Africans or Pan Africans or people in the in the diaspora. I I would encourage two two way um, two way exchange of people and ideas and goods and resources. Right where right now a lot of the times it feels like you have. Uh, initiatives to have Africans study abroad and in, in, in other places, right? Uh, and then the only people who are coming into uh, are, you know, the, we now have the year of return, which is encouraging people from the diaspora to come to Ghana specifically. But in a lot of places, like, I'll talk to my dad about Liberia, you'll have, like, a lot of developers, Chinese developers who come and then they live in somewhat insulated communities yes. and just stay a part of that community without necessarily interacting with local people. I think we need to have many more initiatives for people to go to Africa, right? Uh, even if it's not necessarily their, their focus of study, right? Their, their topic of research uh, in order to, to see that this is a beautiful continent, a beautiful place to be and, uh, and live. So yeah. Yeah. Where would you put yourself in the future of not just Africa, but in what you're doing as, as a technologist, as an artist, as a futurist, where would you put yourself um, in 20 years if you decide to move to Liberia, right? Like what would be the thing that you would put on the ground in order for you to have the 20 year future that, you would you could imagine what do you mean what would i put on the ground like now yeah like how would you start your your future say say you go back to your your place in liberia mm -hmm. and you have an idea of what you want the future to of liberia to look like right, right right what would you put on your grounds like what would you build you know and and i'm just i'm using the term ground figuratively right yeah but what would you build in Liberia to achieve that 20 year down the line idea? It's mm. mm. a really good question. I would, I think I, I would start by restarting the farm uh, that we, that we have the farmland that's in Liberia in order to, begin to generate some sort of income and start to engage the community directly with uh, taking com community ownership of, of that land so that it wouldn't be just my family benefiting from the use of this land, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I would really want to, especially not just because of the place that I am in in my life right now, but I, I feel like I'm a very, like I said before, I'm a very nomadic person. I get a lot of out of traveling and, and getting to interact with people in person. So I think I would like to spend um, a prolonged period of time traveling around the continent, right? And seeing if I can find alternative ways of being as an individual and as like the, the owner of some sort of, or like founder of some sort of initiative to see if there, if there are, are ways of thinking about um, structure or organizational structure that uh, I might be missing out on because I haven't spent a prolonged amount of time in like in Africa at this point. Right. Where, so like the, 
I'm kind of speaking it like abstractly or in circles to a certain extent. So to give a more concrete example, um, in my dad's book, there's a, a section where he talks about um, how back in the day, or groups of people were organized in much more cooperative structures, right? Mm -hmm. Where people would move uh, relatively frequently in order to give the land time to heal itself, right? Between crop yes. cycles and things like that. Yeah. And these are things that we have completely thrown out the window while we are pursuing like Western ideals of progress or Western ways of bringing about this idea of progress, right? Mm -hmm. So I would want to spend some time just traveling around and seeing what other alternative ways of being and alternative ways of thinking can I incorporate into my own daily life and my practice with whatever initiatives we start there uh, in order to really benefit as many people as possible. That's a fantastic answer. Where could everybody find you and um, what you're doing, especially what you're doing with current, what you're doing in um, any information about yourself? Like, where are you? Where, where, where can we locate uh, your stuff. Yeah, so you can find me at kadala.com. That's the benefit of having uh, such a unique name, right? So <laughs> K-A-D-A-L-L-A-H.com. Um, and that's where I, I have most of my information consolidated in there. Um, you can also find me on Currents at K underscore D-A-L-L-A underscore. You know, trying to give a little shout out to Jay Dilla over there. Boom. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, so that's like more for my music stuff and uh, the, these events that I, I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, I would say my Kadala.com is probably the best place to find me. Dope. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show, Kadala. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me. This has been this has been amazing. Yeah. It's given me hope during this uh, quite stressful time. Yeah. I, I always love talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at Ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at Ahmedbest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist podcast, please contact me again at AhmedBest at the AfroFuturistPodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at AhmedBest. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.